Well, for the reading of the word, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34. Well-known section of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. In the section 25 through 34, do not be anxious, Matthew chapter 6. And then we'll be reading after that um, the Heidelberg Catechism together, responsibly. But we'll start in Matthew. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, if you'll turn with me um, into your Forms and Prayers book, page 256, we're going to read responsively Lord's Day 50. It's just one question and answer. Lord's Day 50, this question and answer 125 on page 256. Let's read this uh, responsively. <clears throat> what does the fourth petition mean? Give us this day our daily bread means provide for all our physical needs so that we may recognize that you are the only source of everything good and that neither our care and work nor your gifts can do us any good without your blessing. Therefore, may we withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it in you alone. Brothers and sisters, after Jesus entered Jerusalem the last week before he was crucified, riding on a donkey, revealing his kingship to the world, the first thing on his mind was to cleanse the temple and to restore proper worship again. In Mark, it talks about the very first thing that he did was to go to the temple and inspect it, similar to how a high priest would go and inspect houses of sick people. And he found, of course, that they were guilty. The image that sticks in my mind is one of a lion returning back to his den, only to find that rats have taken over the place. Well, Christ comes the next morning first thing and cleanses the temple. The lion has retaken his den. 
And for the next week before his crucifixion, he's there teaching the people, working miracles, healing. And on one of those days, Christ sat opposite the offering box. And he's watching all sorts of people bring to their offerings to the Lord. And he saw many types of people, including many rich people, putting in large offerings into the box. But I'd ask you, how many of those people did Christ call his disciples over and say, look at how much they put in that offering box? None of them, none of the rich people. But there was one woman who we're very familiar with, a poor widow. She had only a penny to her name. And what did she give but that penny? She gave everything to the Lord. And for that, Christ called his disciples over and he said, that penny was worth more than all the rich people had given, of more value because they gave out of their abundance. But she gave everything that she had. What a beautiful picture. What faith. A challenging picture for us as well, isn't it? Well, the poor widow in this story is a perfect example of what Jesus is teaching us in this passage today. That is, not to worry about any of our daily needs. Much more easy said than done. Not even our necessities. Christ is very clear about that, like food and clothing. Well, this passage, we have to be careful immediately to say, what is this passage not about? And it's not about us saying everything is perfect. Everything's perfect in our lives. We don't have any trials. No, we're not supposed to pretend that. Rather, what it is about is having an appropriate view of our Lord when our eyes are on him. With the widow, her her offering was so great, not because she didn't have trials, not because she pretended she had no trials, but rather her whole life was a trial. She had nothing, a penny. And because of that, because she saw her Lord, she, she knew who her Lord was. She knew that he was generous, that he's creator and giver of all things. Because of that, because she knew, his, he, she knew his generosity and goodness, she trusted in him for all she needed, and so she gave everything. Well, today, with the help of the catechism, we will see how we learn this truth and the way Jesus tells us to pray as well, and why he commands us to ask him for our daily bread. And so we'll see this in two points. First, God commands us to ask him for our daily bread to show us our daily need. And second, God commands us to ask him for our daily bread to show he is the only source of everything good. Well, I think it's obvious, perhaps, but life around the time of Christ was hard. Any sickness today, by today's standards, might, might be a small sickness, but that could lead to death for them. Really, they weren't living, in my opinion, as much as they were surviving, certainly by our standards, not necessarily knowing where their food for next week would come from. And the study, in my studies this last week, I found that the common lifespan, well, for a common person, was 35 years. And when they studied their skeletons, they would see that for a lot of them, they had gone through, uh, undertaken very, very hard labor. You could see that in their bones. Also, even though they would die at young ages, a lot of times they would have similar diseases that we have at much older ages, things like arthritis. Hunger was common. About 90% of people would go through hunger in different stages of their life. And in terms of politics, it's a... Something we like to talk about now, isn't it? They were, they were ruled by Rome, and before that, by Greece. Their politics were openly deadly, vicious. If you remember what Herod did to, to those boys that were two years old and younger, life was hard for them, very much so. We probably can't even understand that. But the world, of course, had to find ways of coping. It had to find its own answers, so they had false religions, they had philosophies, 
even with their politics with Rome, they thought things were, were going okay at that time. Rome had this thing called the Pax Romana. It was peace, really a false sense of peace. You'd pay them taxes. Don't rock the boat. Things went well. They thought they had it under control until, of course, they didn't. Because when things started to slip for Rome, well, they started to squeeze the people. Or for the time, they thought, well, we're okay here. What about other areas of the life, sicknesses and death? Well, that's where their philosophies and things like that would come in. And one very popular philosophy around the time was called Stoicism. Perhaps you've heard it, or maybe you've heard someone say, this person is Stoic, meaning they don't show emotions very much. Well, we, in our school, for school, we had to read a, a letter from a Stoic to a lady who had lost her son. And it was it's very hard to read that. Um, basically, what Stoicism says is, don't ever be sad, just ignore it. Don't ever be happy, just ignore it. And throughout this letter, he was basically telling her, yes, your son is, has, has died. They don't believe in heaven or anything like that. But all he was saying is, well, at least he doesn't exist anymore. He doesn't have to go through pain. And it's just a, it was just a long letter of him telling her, ignore it. Pretend it's not there. What's there to be sad about? Ignore your trials. Avoid seeing them. This would be a difficult time to live if you're a realist. The thought was, don't let yourself be affected by anything sad or even anything happy. Well, the passage before us, I think, could be misconstrued to be used the same way as that. Someone could say, you're worried all the time. Why, why do you care so much about that? Just don't think about that. You know, we're tempted to act as if we have no issues in our lives. Optimism can be very good, as long as it's an optimism based in the Lord. Because you have to ask yourself, why are you optimistic about it? Because optimism can be worldly as well. We could be just relying on our own strength, our own emotional strength, our intellectual strength to get by. No, Jesus here doesn't deny the struggles of our life or even internalizing the struggles of our life. If that were the case, and I would ask you, how would you explain verse 34? If you look at it, it wouldn't make any sense with the rest of the passage. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Why? Because sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, if Jesus was a Stoic, it's, he's not doing it real well. We're not supposed to talk about troubles. Now, Jesus is not saying that we don't have issues, serious trials and problems, and that we just need to not focus on the bad things and look at the good things. No, he's saying, actually, we are needy. We can't even add an hour to our life, no matter what we do. And he's saying today is hard enough. We don't need to be worrying about tomorrow. No, rather, he's saying we are needy. Every day we're needy. Well, in this passage, it's not to encourage self-reliance by avoiding trials or avoiding sadnesses in our lives, because that's the truth. But it's the opposite. It's rather a total reliance on God in our trials. In the same way, even the language Jesus teaches us in the prayer for our daily bread, doesn't that harken back to the manna in the wilderness? Give us this day our daily bread. We talked about that a little bit this morning. In Deuteronomy, Moses was reminding them of all the things that God was teaching them before they went into the promised land. Well, I'd like to put this before you again tonight. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. He reminds them of the teaching of the manna. What was happening with that? Was it an accident that they were hungry? Of course not. No, God was testing them. He was showing them to look at him. I'll read just a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Why the manna? Moses says, And he humbled you and let you hunger. And fed you with manna, which you, did, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
And it's just this next verse. Thinking about the passage today, he says, Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. It's amazing. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. God was teaching them by means of the trial of hunger that they were needy. Every day they were needy, and every day they had to rely on the Lord. God wasn't teaching them to tough it out. That wouldn't make any sense. They can't just make food from nothing. No, he was using this trial of hunger that he sent their way to discipline them, saying, rely on me. And it's interesting, too, in this passage in Deuteronomy, he says that man doesn't live by bread alone, the physical aspect, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's how he lived. In our passage, too, Jesus says the same thing. If you look at verse 25, at the very end of verse 25, the question that Jesus said, asks, he's saying the same thing. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Brothers and sisters, for a second, before we dive a little bit more deeply into this passage, I think we should take a step back because it's, it's always good to know the, the general context before we look at the specifics. And so here, we want to look at um, the, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And if you can remember, if you, if you were uh, in my John sermon, it was a couple weeks ago now, John chapter 6, I talked a little bit about this chapter of John where he, he gathers a slice of what they would call Christ's Galilean ministry, his time in Galilee. And it was a very climactic time. It was a very exciting time. Christ is healing and preaching basically the countryside. People from everywhere was coming to him. And that time is now. And if you look here, just at the end of chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew explains that he illustrates this time in Christ's ministry. 423, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, that's throughout the whole land. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then 5.1, it gives the context of this teaching. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. If you remember, I talked about this a lot as well. During this time in his ministry, everybody was asking the same question, who is Jesus? This is the same for his disciples and even the 12 still didn't know who Jesus fully was. And that's what he's, that's what he's teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, who he is and what is, who, what is his kingdom. And he's saying to them, I am the Messiah, and I speak on my own authority. This is just summarized. My kingdom is not of this world. And see, the people would look and they'd say, surely the Pharisees are the people of God. The, Pharisees did, the, the authority that the Pharisees, the Pharisees had was social authority. People looked up to them socially. They were the influencers, I guess you could say, of the day. And he's using the Pharisees then in this um, sermon. He's saying, look at the Pharisees. You know, they're not the example of those in my kingdom. In fact, the Pharisees who were looked up as very righteous, he's saying that the people in my kingdom will have to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's where, he, that's where he brings in the Beatitudes. He's saying the standards of my kingdom is far beyond the Mosaic law. You know, it's not just about doing right, it's that you have to be right. And when you look at the Pharisees, they thought that man could make their way to God through the following of the law. 
And Christ is saying, no, 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 that gap between man and God is not only way further, but it's not approachable. God has to come down. You need a Messiah. You need me. You can't just tack on Christ onto whatever life you're living. No, it's going to require a whole transformation. And so when it comes down to it, Jesus is saying, this is my kingdom. And it's not like earthly kingdoms. Those are what, that, that you may be seeking, and many of them were, because we know in John 6, a lot of them felt turned away from Christ. Jesus was showing the disciples their real need. That's what he's doing in this passage. Well, they sought food and clothing, things that they needed that were hard to come by. Well, Jesus is saying life is more than that. What do you really need? And he talks to them about the different ways, the two different paths. There's the wide path. And he's telling them, you need to go on the small path, right? The hard path to find. That's Christ. He's trying to draw their eye. He's not saying ignore your trials. You don't have trials. No, but in that case, really our trials help point us to our real need. And so in our prayers every day, it is important that we also recognize our daily needs and bring them to the Lord. What trial are you struggling with? Is there something in your life that you feel you'll never change? Or someone's told you you'll never change? Or you think you'll never heal from? Well, I'll ask you, do you bring that to the Lord every day? Because in it, he's trying to call you to him. It is by our trials that God disciplines us and reminds us that we don't live on bread alone. We don't live on money alone. Time, health, work, happiness, all the things that the world tells us we need, we deserve. We don't live on those things alone. And yes, by our needs and asking for them in prayer, we will recognize, as the Catechism says, that God is not only the source, or is, sorry, that God is the source of everything good. He's the only source. And so we'll look at that in our second point. God commands us to ask him for our daily bread to show he is the only source of everything good. So Jesus was teaching the disciples the difference now between what an earthly kingdom offers and looks like and what Jesus was bringing in in his kingdom. He's warning them. Why, why do we need a warning? Because we're selfish, aren't we? We're always looking for our own benefits. But even for them, life was hard, as, we went, as I talked about at the beginning. And here it is, they finally found him, the answer to all of their physical, worldly needs, their king. A lot of them would call him a prophet. He was healing, feeding. I mean, these are the basic needs. Speaking in authority, as a king would need to do. Well, a lot of them, like I said, fell away because they were looking for an earthly king. And what else is an earthly kingdom for but for these things? Right? An earthly king is supposed to protect, supposed to, to provide for necessities. Ultimately, they were looking for worldly benefits. They don't even probably care about the king themselves, just the benefits of the king. We see that, I think, today in our modern politics. Most people care only about what they're saying and not only about what they're saying that year. You can even look many years ago, and they'll say something not even that far many years ago. Really, a couple years, they'll say something completely different. Because they don't really care about the person. They care about the politics, right? It's the results. They're looking for the results. And they saw Jesus. Yes, Jesus they, is pure and pure God, of course. But they didn't care about that part. They just cared about the results. Christ was healing, making food. They don't have care for God. They're searching, searching for an earthly king. Well, we talked a little bit ago about the Israelites. I want to bring them back up again as well. And the Exodus. 
And that was a similar situation for them. God got results, didn't he? Delivering them from Egypt through wonders. And they were happy with that, of course, until God tested them in the wilderness and brought the trial of hunger. It didn't take them long to forget God. They had no care for God anymore. In fact, they complained only to Moses. If you remember, they said, well, we should have just died in Egypt. At least we could have died there. And they would have because the Pharaoh was killing their sons. It would have gotten worse. And they would have died there. But they said, at least we could have died around food. Again, they have no care for God. They don't know who God is. They weren't looking at God because God is one who provided the food in Egypt. It wasn't Egypt's wisdom or their power, whatever it may be. God provided them with food there, wherever they were. The manna, of course, was a reminder to them that God provided, needed to provide for all their needs. And for these disciples, Christ is doing the same thing. It's a stinging word, he says, you of little faith. Yes, Jesus in these verses then uses very clear and basic logic with them. If you, read, if you just go through it, it's very easy to follow. He says that surely you know that life is more than food. Even birds who don't plant and reap, that don't store food, they're still fed by the Father. And you are much more loved by the Father than they. And you worry about clothes, but God clothes all his creation. Even the plants that are here today and gone tomorrow. The Gentiles spend their whole lives seeking fixes for their temporary needs. The bread that perishes, the clothes that will rip and grow old. But you know that your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. So rather than worrying about them, worry about seeking the kingdom of God and know that he will give you all your need. That's what he says in this, these verses. And brothers and sisters, we can testify to the fact that an earthly kingdom cannot bring peace to those seeking earthly comforts. Because look at our country today. How many people do you know starve in the streets? You'd really have to try probably to starve yourself to death. And what's worry today? Anxiety and worry has gone off the charts Right? We have insurance. That should do it. But we have insurance for our insurance. And even that starts to not be enough. And I don't mean to make anyone that may suffer from anxiety, I don't mean to put you down. Because is it better for someone who doesn't struggle with anxiety, who never goes to God, who never, tries, who never asks God for help? No, but our trials, whatever that may be, will help us to rely on him. Now, really, Jesus here is more focused on our seeking. What are we seeking? How are we seeking? What do you spend your time seeking? Is it comfort or security? Looking perfect, perhaps, to others? Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you don't care about any of that stuff. Maybe you just want entertainment. You know, you don't need to stress. Well, Jesus here is actually talking about necessities that we need. The basics of life. He's saying... Even the basics, he's saying, are you seeking anything, anything at all, those things that you even need? Are you seeking those outside of God, outside of his will? Do you seek things the way the Gentiles do? In other words, the way the world does? And I think that's really key. And it's worth spending some time on how, how, do, the, how do the Gentiles, how does the world seek its needs? And I think the key to that is that we have to understand they've rejected God. They don't have God in their life. They're separated from his goodness, his mercy, Hope. And so what world do they live in, separated from God? Well, a world where the strongest survive. The weak is prey. Clothes, treasure, those things that they would store up are eaten by moths or stolen. 
This is their heaven. It's a sad truth. So for the Pharisees that would stand on corners and pray, people would pat them on the back or whatever they would do, that, that's their reward. Where they could be pouring their heart out before the Lord, that they could spend eternity with their Savior, they're going for a pat on the back because they don't know God. Sometimes people in the world, their lives can look good, but of course we know that that will come crashing down any moment because it's all false. And even for all of them, when they die, it will come crashing down. How does the world seek things apart from God? The only way they can. But from the position, basically, in an illustration, it's like them being in a room of starving people, and they're all grasping for food that perishes, and they're trying to rend it away from the hands of another person who's starving, stepping on the bodies of others to climb to the top. And why is that? Because they don't know God's love or His generosity, and they seek things in this light. The real question and the warning to us, why do you seek things this way? What do you seek in this way? Instead, Christ is telling us, seek God. What does it mean to seek God? But to seek to know God, to dwell with God like Mary did. She wanted to just be with Christ. She wanted that time. Do we do that in our devotions? Can we do that? We should. Seek to know Him and to dwell with Him. Because when we know God, then we'll stop seeking things the way the world does because we'll see God, just like the widow that we talked about at the beginning. And who is God? Who is this that we're seeking that we see? But the one from which all good things flow, as the Catechism said. He created all things with His breath. The beauty of the stars and the clouds, which have been beautiful this past couple weeks, He made man and woman, loved them, gave them all they needed, and much more. And then, of course, what did man do but question God's intention for them? Did God really have their best in mind? But even after that, what happened with Abraham? God came to him to bless him, to bless a people, to show them his generosity, even so much so that they would shine to the world, that God would show his generosity to the world through them. But again... People left God. The people of God left him over and over again. And the Old Testament can be difficult sometimes to read through. If you ever tried reading for a couple hours through some of those chapters. <laughs> Except for in that darkness of the people, Christ shines all the brighter, doesn't he? And that's what God wants us to know. He wants us to know him and ourselves. And yet, even with the unfaithfulness that we have towards God, God still did not give us what we deserve, but rather sent his only son, to die for us. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And this is our king. And Jesus is saying to seek him, seek God. All good comes from him. Think about that. Every, everything that you've experienced in your life, Every good has been from him, from his hand. Yeah, brothers and sisters, we can't seek the way the Gentiles seek for things. We can't. And why? Because we know God. We know his love for us. Not just before he turned our hearts to him, but now. He's patient with us, even in our selfishness. We know the beauty of his wisdom, especially the older that we get. We see the hundreds of thousands of things that needed to take place for his blessing in our lives. And that's just 
for us. Think about it for all those people, for all the world, for all the animals, for all the grass, even the plants. It's amazing. The beauty of his wisdom, the care. He uses his fingers to place the stars. We trust in his wisdom, don't we? So what do you worry about? It's less about looking about what we worry about and more about looking about him. If you could have control of that right now and you could get rid of it, not, not within God's will, but with your own will, would you do that or would you trust God's will? What would you choose? Whatever that trial is. And though I'm sure, like myself, you'd be tempted to say, yeah, you'd get rid of it. But it's the very work of God in you and in me that would rather say no, that we wouldn't, because we trust our Lord. We trust his wisdom and we trust his care because we know that he loves us. So brothers and sisters, God has commanded you and me to come to him daily to ask for our needs because he wants to show us again who he is. He wants to take whatever idols we have, whatever idols we're leaning on right now for support and destroy them, and that can be painful and difficult. David says, let the bones of you broken rejoice because our idols can become to such a degree that we lean on them almost as if it's a bone in our leg. And when God can destroy those, that can be painful for us. Well, we come to him so that we can have the true joy of placing our trust in him and his love for us. And we can do that by seeing our needs daily and bringing that to him. Well, I'd like to close by reading from Romans 8, 31 to 39, a passage that's very well known. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, our God, we come before you this, the beginning of this new week. We acknowledge, Lord, that we have trials in our lives, but often we try to ignore them or look past them. And we thank you, Lord, for those things in our lives. We pray that you would guide us through them, that you would help, to, help us to come to you in prayer and to read your word and to seek you diligently and to, to seek that time with you, to dwell with you, so that we would, our eyes would not be so much on the trials of our life, but that they would be on you and that you would be able to take our anxieties away because of those things. We pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us of our failing in this area. We pray this all in, your, in um, Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>